Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 5, Episode 7. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I'll be talking with longtime franchise lenders Nick Cole of MUFG and Mike Egan of Snovis Bank. We will be doing a State of the Union review of the current franchise lending environment, and they'll be sharing their thoughts on Unbridled's recent industry-wide lender survey. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the Boiler Room. Well, you guys, thank you all for joining. If you do listen to this on the Restaurant Boiler Room, which is our podcast, which comes out a couple of weeks after this webinar, I would just say howdy podcast listeners. And it's hard to believe we're in the middle of our fifth season of podcasting. So just thank you for your loyalty and for listening wherever you may be. So thank you for that. We do keep all of our content on Bridled Capital's website. So you can go there anytime and you can get podcasts, you can get this webinar or you can get a YouTube link to this webinar or a YouTube link to the podcast, all from our website. And we have all the historical stuff there. So that's www.unbridledcapital.com. Feel free to go to that anytime if you want to. A quick update, I always do this before each webinar. I think we're on track to close a 12-unit Taco Bell deal today in the Arizona area. It should be closing as we speak. We have 13 other assignments at the moment, four of which should close in the next 30 days. And they are in the Pizza Hut and Popeye's brands, Pizza Popeye's and one other one. And then we just took four new assignments totaling about 300 units in the last two weeks. And they're in the Pizza Hut, Massage Envy, Little Caesars, European Wax, and KFC are the brands. So they're larger deals, big ones. And if you hear this and you're interested or your company's interested in any of those types of assets, you know, please reach out to us. In terms of the podcast here, what we're going to do is I'm going to let these gentlemen introduce themselves. I got it bang up cast here of all stars, right? These aren't a bunch of rookies. These are small stars. So when Nick and Mike introduce themselves, we'll jump into this. The reason why I wanted to have them on is we do an annual lender survey and we had 39 responses to the lender survey. We published it and sent it out on our email platform. You probably saw it. And I wanted them to come in and give some context and color individually to some of the questions that we asked. So I think it'll be a really good webinar. If you have any questions along the way, you can raise your hand and we'll try to, you know, guys watch out for it and and we can answer the questions as we go. You can also email me afterwards. And if it's something that I can't answer, I'll plug you into either of these two gentlemen to answer the questions. So we're honored you're here. I'll start off with the introduction. Maybe go Nick, then Mike. Can you guys introduce yourself real quickly? And we'll just jump into the webinar. Thank you for joining. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Yes, my quick intro. I work at uh, MUFG, which is a large Japanese bank with an American presence. And I'm head of the consumer services platform here, which covers the restaurant industry, of course, which I've been around for a long time, and then some other franchise businesses and a food and beverage practice and chain hotels. So a lot of consumer-driven businesses. So I have that perspective I bring to the table. And I guess my claim to fame is more longevity. I went through the Bank of Boston management training program in 1995. So that tells you a little bit how long I've been around. And virtually since then, doing some deals in the restaurant space back when nobody would touch them. And so I've kind of seen it grow and build over time to something that's weirdly competitive today, actually, compared to what it was in the early days. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's for sure. Thank you so much, Nick. And what do you got, uh, Mike? How about you? Okay, 25 years, restaurant finance, sale lease back, workouts, bankruptcy work, middle market debt, owned a restaurant, worked in restaurants, started out as a dishwasher, proud of that humble start, you know, some grease in the veins. And I love this business and folks who know me know I have a passion for it. It's been through a multiple cycles and, you know, I feel like we got one teeing up here that we're going to be getting ready for. But I would tell you that Sonovus Bank, a little over 60 billion in assets. We'd like to think of ourselves as being nimble enough to get things done quickly. And the connectivity with senior leadership is great, better than anywhere I've really ever been to be able to do the things that we can do where we can punch above our weight and we can commit on larger deals with the larger banks gives me a lot of tools to be able to get things done. And we have been getting things done and closing deals. One in the first quarter, we're launching a syndication this week. So there are banks out there lending. There are some that are pretending to be lending as a nod to a friend up in New England who likes to say that, but we are closing deals and our record reflects that. And so you take some comfort, we're going to be a good resource for you in the future. Well, thank you. You don't want to get into too many of your secrets so quickly, Mike, but I will start calling you Hollywood because of his background. You want to start calling him Hollywood, Nick? I don't know, man. man. I mean, look at that thing. He looks like a humble dishwasher. Come on. Ah, come on. on. Oh, shoot. Uh, Well, you see the little horse in the background. That's my only design. You know what I mean? But, uh, well, honored to have both of you guys here. You've got great perspectives. You both have been in the industry a little bit longer than me, actually. I feel like I'm the old guy these days, but uh, we've all been around a long time. Let's start with the first question. And the first question from the lender survey, and you know, just take a couple of minutes to respond. Why don't we go in the order that we started? You want to just do Nick and then Mike, and I'll just lob this first one out of here. What's your opinion of the operating environment right now? You know, I think we were missing an answer in the survey because there was no answer that said the operating environment is great. I think it's pretty great right now, actually. <laughs> to me, it's pretty clear we turned a corner at the beginning of the year. I think we all expected to turn that corner. Maybe we were hopeful, but we expected because you know, it just takes a year for the kind of inflation that we saw for the companies to kind of adjust menu prices and catch up to it. And so that worked. And obviously the Fed was working as hard as they could to bring that inflation down, which has been probably a bit more successful than I think everyone imagined. So a lot of things came into focus really from January 1 started to see it a little bit in December and it's kind of marched through as far as we can see in the results of our customers and everyone I talked to through the second quarter and the summer is progressing nicely. I think we've kind of teetered on the edge of where price increases start to show traffic decline, but we haven't quite gotten there yet, a little bit here and there, but you know, that's not so bad. I mean, the prices are up there. I don't think margins are 100% of where they were at their peak, but they're good enough. And so the business looks pretty good. It's a little bit about, you know, how we think about the next six to 12 months playing out. But right now, the operating environment seems pretty good to me. Okay. Yeah, it's an optimistic answer. I, I like the answer. And I agree with you. Most of the customers that we're working with are doing pretty well right now, right? And they're having a pretty good year. They don't, it's not like they've got like, the last 12 months look a little different in terms of the, you know, the last six months look better, but for sure. I would agree. What do you yeah. say, Mike? I think it's math really, right? You're rolling off probably two of the worst quarters that I've seen in 25 years in the mm-hmm. restaurant space in the first, second quarter of last year. 
you're replacing them with better EBITDA, right? Guys were able to take five and 10% price increases over the past year. A lot of folks got caught off guard in the beginning of last year. And with labor spiking and the cost of goods sold spiking, a lot of folks were left flat-footed. I was getting calls from CPAs who manage the books for a lot of restaurant franchisees, even in quick service, they were losing five, 600 basis points overnight. And so a lot of that's behind us. It's in the rear view mirror. And we all think in terms of trailing 12 months of EBITDA when it comes to valuation or debt metrics and those sorts of things. And if you look back over the past 12 months, it actually looks quote unquote normal, sustainable, which is the word bankers have been saying for about three years now through COVID, like where is the sustainable EBITDA? And I think we've kind of hit that. And Rick, I always point to you as a leading economic indicator in our M&A space, right? And in talking to you maybe three months ago, things were a little dry. There wasn't a whole lot of phone ringing. I would say even for myself in the past few weeks, we're starting to see the logjam break. I sent out a note to like 600 folks just this two weeks ago to announce this. And I really do feel like the M&A logjam is starting to break up. There's some good activity. There is a phenomenon of deal scarcity that's occurring where you're getting these outsized multiples because there's not a lot of deals for sale. But I do feel that that's going to start to feed on itself where sellers who've been on the sidelines for maybe two years now are starting to think, all right, it's time to get out. I always make this joke, right? Sellers are learning to spell capitulate. And talking to another M&A broker recently last week, he said the same thing. The words out of his mouth, guys are throwing in the towel. They've had enough. Now, some of those are the harder brands, right? And they're just want to get out of the business. But this idea that it's time to trade and trying to retire, move on, whatever it may be, take advantage of a higher multiple before the market floods, that's starting to happen. And that feels really good, honestly, from the perspective of a banker. As bankers, we have a whole different set of challenges we'll talk more about later, but I feel really good about the operating environment. Inflation's down. Employment continues to be a bit of a challenge for operators. We're still not back to where we were pre-COVID levels in terms of the numbers of employees working in this industry. But for most of what we focus on, which is fast food, quick service, or fast casual, the labor problem has subsided a bit. Yeah, that's great. That's a good answer. I certainly see the same thing on our side of the business to the M&A side. Thanks for the comments. I, I think you've seen you know, a recent uptick in business from larger clients. A couple of these deals are you know, people who are financially backed or by private equity or family office. So there may be I mean, a small sample size, but we may be seeing that the first people coming back to market are the financially backed franchisees, whereas the smaller middle-sized franchisees have not been as eager to do it, at least from our standpoint. That'll probably change, but just at this moment in time. And that wouldn't make sense to me because all things equal, usually the financial buyers are the most savvy in terms of timing when they want to get out into the market relative to the supply and demand. And they think about that stuff a lot more than a 15-unit operator rule, for example. So that's great. It's good commentary. The second question is, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but what do you think about a recession? You think we're going to hit a recession and you think it'll be nasty? You want to take it first, Mike, and then we'll jump back to Nick? Yeah. So that note that I sent out, I sent everybody a note about you all need to be watching The Bear on Hulu this summer. Absolutely great restaurant, TV. You're going to love it. I think people took it as like, tune in and watch The Bear. It was like me. I'm not totally bearish, but I don't think you can argue with a lot of the facts and the figures and things I've been writing about or talking about for a while. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, you're like a broken clock. You're right twice a day. But at some point, we're going to hit a recession. And a lot of the factors 
that are pointing us towards that are 15 months of the leading economic indicators from the NBER have been negative, right? There's a 100% correlation with recession. Recessions don't start until after the Fed stops raising rates. And we're about to maybe get more one and done after tomorrow's meeting. And that might be the last increase for a period of time. But you can look back at history, right? And I would say that, you know, back when Nick and I were in grammar school and studying economics, in 1988, you had a 325 basis point increase in rates coming off the stock market crash of 87, right? So the Fed was taking their money back. By 89, people were talking about soft landing the same way they talk about it today. Like they've managed to figure out a soft landing. There's always a lag. It always takes more time than you realize. And you look at 1990, you had a recession. Between 90 and 95, you started to have a commercial real estate collapse that affected banks and created a wave of bank mergers. There's turmoil in the months ahead. I started out thinking that this might be a six to nine month peak to trough turn in the economy. We'd have a reset of valuations. The Fed would blink and cut rates. My concern is what happened in March with the bank failures and what is evolving into a credit crunch and a number of other economic factors that this could be 18 months of a grind as banks start to realize their commercial real estate losses, their bond books that are underwater where they bought bonds at low rates and today they're worth less than 100 cents on the dollar. And then of course, deposits, right? Which is the headline story for banks. I mean, we've lost I think it's about $1.2 trillion, which is maybe 7 to 8% of the total deposits in the country have left the building. And they've gone to money markets, money market accounts, they've gone to T-bills, other sources. That is our beef, if you will. That is our chicken wings, if you will. And the price of the cost of our capital has risen as a result of that. And we've got to take price to get back to where we were in terms of profitability margins and whatnot. So that's going to evolve. That's just going to take more time than folks realize. And I know it looks bright right now, but I am still concerned about what evolves next. Fair. What do you think, Nick? We need to hop on a boat and go off to sail off to take a pause for two years and come back? Or what do we got to do here? I mean, first, like, I'm not a big predictor of economic cycles because I just think it's difficult. And if I could do it well, I probably wouldn't be talking to you guys right now. I'd be doing something else. It's tough. But just to sort of review maybe a few facts. First, it is the Fed's stated philosophy that you need to have a recession to an end an inflation cycle. They start with that point of view, right? So they're not getting talked out of that. They've always been that way. And then once the Fed goes on that track, as Mike pointed out, I think since 1950, every episode of disinflation that has been the subject of interest rates increasing has resulted in a recession. So the Fed is undefeated in their record on that. And disinflation is different than deflation. Disinflation is simply the slowing of inflation, not going negative, right? So we've already had that couple of measures that they focus on. The CPI is running right now around 3%, which is a hell of a lot better than 9% where it was a year ago. But still, the Fed's stated target is 2%. They don't view themselves as successful until they're at 2%. And we certainly haven't gotten there yet. And we've only been at 3% for a couple of months. 
So that's kind of sitting out there as an expectation. And, you know, when you look at the wages and salary stuff, like, you know, one indicator that I tend to think about is wages and salaries are up 5%, which is certainly, you know, in the first quarter of this year, which is certainly half of what it was a year ago, which is great. But whenever wages and salaries outpace the pace of inflation, it's a negative leading indicator because people are the number one economic input. So people are running more expensive. Inflation still has room to move up. And as we've been on this tear with the stock market, right, because whatever it was, 14 days in a row of positive stock market moves, because so many people are now feeling like a soft landing is possible. But I think the measures would tell you that, you know, we're not done yet. I don't think that's all bad, though. You know, like to me, it's not about like achieving inflation. It's important for our industry that inflation stop. We do have to get there eventually. The industry will be better served if we get there and put a stop to the inflation cycle that we're in. And restaurant companies have some room to maneuver here. You know, they're generally, I mean, we focus on QSR for the most part, and it's generally pretty resilient as a whole, maybe not brand by brand, but it's generally pretty resilient. So it's not the end of the world to our industry if the Fed is successful and long-term it kind of needs to be. So I don't take that as all kind of bad news. And I do think there's some slack. I tend to think about, you know, our operators and they're sort of wondering about recapturing some margin and some sales, even if traffic slows. But I tend to think about maybe because I have teenage kids, but you know, it's those people who are sitting on their couch thinking they need to pay 30% more to have fast food delivered so they don't have to interrupt their call of duty session who might have to think about whether it's time to get up and actually pay for that food. That's not all bad for our industry, right? It's bad for the delivery folks, but it's not bad for our industry. And I do think there's quite a bit of slack out there. And, you know, the businesses that we work with, they're smarter than they've ever been about operating in an environment where expenses need to be managed. There's more technology that they're bringing to bear on those issues. So I think we're pretty well set up. And to me, it's just a matter of whether your prediction is a long, deep kind of recession or whether we sort of tag up and things get back on track pretty quickly. I'm reminded, you know, you guys probably don't know this. I got into this crazy industry because we were in a bad recession. I was at Vanderbilt MBA school and it was like crickets in the hallway because none of the companies were hiring. This is like a 9-11 timeframe, right? And a little old restaurant company out of Louisville, Kentucky says, we come because we do well in a recession. I'm like, really? Who are you? And they're like, we're young brands, KFC, Taco Bell, pizza. You know, people eat that stuff more when times get a little tighter. And that's how I got into the business all these years ago. So I went to work for Young. So I think there is a measure of resiliency, which is what you're saying, that the QSR space especially, but franchising in general, most concepts within franchising actually are pretty darn resilient. That's what makes them such an enviable type of investment for the right opportunity. Yeah. Well, the next couple of questions, guys, and maybe we'll go back to Nick and then to Mike. How many corporate borrowers and new customers have you added in the last six months and the last 12 months? We'll just combine these two because we're running a little bit behind. We fit solidly in that 10 plus category. We've been on our front foot, I think, for six months now. It's kind of seeing that the market was going to turn and trying to do business. I think 
I wish there was more activity out there. We are in a place where you got to see some business results first before the transaction activity picks up. So it's been more refinance, recap, natural maturities coming up, growth, expansion, that kind of thing, than it's been M&A. But you know, we've been kind of solidly on pace of doing business, certainly below the peak of what we saw in deal activity and loan growth and customer growth year and a half ago, but certainly hasn't ended. I think we'll see it come around though in the second half of this year. That's great. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Maya? Yeah, I'd say the same. Synovus is new to the space. Scott Tachi got here about a year before I did. I've been here a little over a year and it's all been a lot of new customers, right? So naturally it's going to be in the higher end of that yes. scale. And again, I've, I've been kind of proud of what we've been able to do, which is larger commitments that allow us to participate up at the joint lead arranger level, sole lender relationships. We're starting to lead arrange deals now. So I feel very good about that. I would say that as an industry, generally, it's been harder to add new customers because you've got to kind of pick and choose, right? Folks are in the midst of a pre-workout or some sort of a modification amendment in order to kind of get through covenant breaches last year, which depressed the ability to pull folks out of other banks or move between banks or even consider new acquisitions, right? So I think we had a pretty depressed environment last year. I think this year is going to be much better, honestly. I think it's going to be more selective. I'd probably call it a credit crunch for some segments of the industry, you know, and think full service where they're vulnerable with the cost of a tip or reliance upon delivery that has gotten so expensive. There's going to be vulnerable spots where you're not going to want to take credit risk, not in an environment when overall credit quality is weaker than it has been in the past. As you and I talked, Rick, I wish they would kind of redesign the question a little bit more, like how many new questions did you add in the last six months? And how about the six months prior to that to get a sense of the trend? And maybe next year we'll do something like that to kind of get an idea of what real time looks like. Because I do think that as March hit and the first quarter hit, performance of new loan demand, just in general, the Dallas Fed is reporting dramatically near zero CNI loan growth, which is commercial industrial loan growth. And so it's evolving into a bit more of a credit crunch. And some of that's loan demand. Folks just aren't borrowing the money. Some of it's M&A activity is just way down and acquisitions are down and uncertainty about what's going to happen next. And so they just haven't pulled the trigger on creating new credit relationships. I suspect for us, when we talk about M&A activity, I suspect for us that 2022 and 2023 together for our company will be less than what we did in 2021. Like maybe it'll be one of these things where it'll be 2022 and 2023 and one half of 2024 will equal what we did in 2021, for example. And then during that 2022 to 2023 to one half of 2024 timeline, you have this kind of like modestly increasing line of activity. So I think I agree with what your all's comments are. Let me ask a question for like the 20 unit operator who has a loan that has a five-year term on it and he's in year four of his five-year term and he's had it fixed at 3% interest rate. So what's a guy like that or a girl like that to do? What are they after? What is their end goal? They got to, re- they got to refinance their debt. So you got a 12-year amortization on a business-only loan that had a five-year term on it and they owe $15 million and now their bank is renegotiating. Are they thinking about that? 
because they're going to be making bigger payments, aren't they? Quite, yeah. quite a bit larger payments. No question. Yeah, just fundamentally, you know, the shift from LIBOR to SOFR was really just a floating rate shift, not a dramatic one. More so the spread that a bank might be looking to charge in the future is going to go up. And I guarantee you the first question to that borrower will be is, what does your treasury business look like? And how big are your deposits? Because every bank right now is has elevated that to their first question is, what is a depository relationship? You know, back in the day when I was a lender, before 15 years ago, this idea of compensating balance, you know, what treasury business, what depository relationship are you going to bring to the bank in order to convince us that we should also make a loan for a full relationship? That's become a much more important conversation today. Other factors like terms, conditions, structure, you know, there's been a downshift. You're going to cover some of this in the questions and answers that obviously generally, you know, leverage is getting a little bit tighter in terms of lease adjusted leverage coming down a quarter to a half turn, depending on the brand. Amortization may be shortening a little bit. Bottom line is that your mortgage constant, if you will, your monthly principal and interest payments are going to be higher, which is going to eat into your cash on cash returns, which is the way most operators think about how do I get a return out of this business? It's going to be tighter. And so for that reason, you've got to be more scrutinizing of acquisitions and investments, and they've got to have a real rate of return that makes sense. You don't have the luxury of burning equity in your business by making bad decisions at a time like this. But Nick, you got anything to add? That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess back to your original question about, you know, what can a borrower expect in that refinancing scenario that's different today than it was when they did their original loan. So obviously, you know, the index rate, which is now so far has gone from in the low twos to a little over 5% in the last year, right? So that's just more expensive period. And that's, There's nothing you can do about that for the time being. It'll move in a different direction at some point in the future. And you kind of look at it over averages. It's a good thing that this operator you mentioned is hedged. Some things banks aren't always willing to do, but customers should ask because I think it makes a ton of sense is looking for hedge products that go out beyond the maturity of their original loan so they can you know, in those periods of time, have a little bit of cushion. There are definitely ways to do that. Not every bank will do that, but there are definitely ways to do that. I think make a lot of sense, but you know, those are the facts. The other issue, which Mike sort of hit on is that nature of the bank world has changed a little bit and it's changed in a couple of ways. You do have banks who are looking to charge more of a risk premium because they've just been through a period of time where their portfolios were under strain and they're recalibrating how they think about risk based on the losses or the difficulties that they've had in their portfolio, that's very bank by bank. I would say from our perspective, we were underwriting to a inflation reversion risk scenario already, which made us miss on some deals, but also made us confident that we would ride through this and haven't changed our view of how to underwrite, so we're not recalibrating but some banks are recalibrating. But very separately from that, all the banks have to deal with the ever-evolving regulatory environment. And some things have definitely changed. The banks that I've worked for historically and today have always sat in that category of the largest, you know, what we like to call the too big to fail, but the ones that sort of fit under the higher level of regulatory scrutiny. But you know, with this last group of bank failures. And these conversations with the regulators were already underway to kind of change 
some things about the bank regulatory environment to address some of the holes that existed. But very likely, the conversation is that they're going to increase the number of banks that fit under that higher level of scrutiny to 700 billion in assets today, and they're going to drop it to 300 billion in assets which covers, you know, roughly your top 30 banks. So it really covers the gamut of a lot of those mid-sized banks that the folks on the line deal with that will kind of be under that different level of scrutiny. And that scrutiny comes in different ways. It's different capital requirements and especially different stress test regimens. So, you know, one of the problems is sort of the whole match funding problem that is the banking business, right? Can the bank borrow overnight deposits and lend out on five-year terms and how much can it do that? Well, you know, that's what's getting engineered out of the system. We have to better match fund to our maturity. So, and that means we have to borrow longer term, which means we have to borrow at higher rates, which means our cost of capital is going up. So higher levels of capital, different kind of regulatory environment, different kind of stress testing, and more banks having to deal with that than used to have to deal with that means all of that has moved. And that's why every bank is looking at their balance sheets and thinking liquidity is the challenge right now. I work for a weird bank because we're overseas based and our deposit structure is a little bit different than most banks. So, you know, it's not, we're more of a safe haven bank when it comes to deposit, one that has to worry about the stress of deposits moving around. But, you know, it was very eye-opening with some of these bank failures that how quickly deposits can move and what you have to do in terms of managing your liquidity. So, I'm as old as you, and I do remember that phrase, compensating balances, that that definitely ages us. But I definitely hear more and more that banks need to get, you know, some kind of movement so they can manage that loan to deposit ratio that's very important to them. And I think that's kind of here to stay for definitely a period of time because, you know, that bank liquidity issue is in some ways temporary because of the rate rising environment, but in some ways is going to be made permanent because of what the Fed and the regulators are going to do. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, economic geek on you here. So Hyman Minsky is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And during the great financial crisis, uh, the guys at PIMCO pointed to him as we were in a Minsky moment, right? And a simple way to think about this is that a rubber band can stretch and stretch and stretch, and eventually it snaps. And when it snaps, you have the pendulum swing from one side to the other. And I feel like what started to happen in March was the beginning of that snap. And what usually comes out of situations like that is a deleveraging of balance sheets, a de-risking of their balance sheets, not taking more risk, taking less, and re-regulation. So the regulators got caught off guard, so now they're staffing up and they're gonna be tightly scrutinizing the banks. Congress is already working on this. And you get this pendulum swing to the other end of the spectrum where things were super easy and money was cheap to now it will be more expensive. Banks are going to be asked to increase their capital by about 20%. And I think it's down to almost $100 they want to go back to. Things that were in Dodd-Frank that got pushed out during the negotiations. And I think that's simply going to make it tougher for banks. Think about if a bank has to go out and do a secondary offering. This is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. They went out and tried to raise stock at the same time. They were recognizing 
huge losses in the sale of bonds that they had on their books in order to create liquidity. And we know how that ended. So banks are in a difficult spot where they can't issue equity. It's just going to make it a much tighter operating environment for the banks. We've had 15 years of near zero interest rates and a whole generation of folks who've worked on Wall Street, who've worked in banks, who just haven't seen a severe recession that didn't involve government stimulus at the level that it did. It didn't involve direct payments. You go back to the great financial crisis in 08, 09 and what occurred then. TARP and TALF were directed money to the banks. There weren't payments made to people. So there's so many things that are changing that we haven't been living under, and it's going to just change the environment. And so for that reason, you know, find lenders who know what they're doing, who've been through multiple cycles like Nick and I, and who can calm you and help you navigate those difficult times. We're going to have long-term relationships with other lenders at other banks that if you're trying to get a larger deal done, 50, 100, 200, $300 million deal, that we're going to be able to pick up the phone and negotiate with folks that we have long-term relationships to help get that deal syndicated and clear the market. I'm in the middle of syndicating, and Nick, you've been through some of this too. You like to hear your comments, but I, if you're calling other banks today, it's the same conversation. What are the deposits that are coming with the relationship? If we're going to participate in a transaction, we need depository relationship, not just the ancillary of a piece of the swap, but really a full relationship. And that's making it harder to get larger deals to clear market. The CLO market, the term loan B market, which do much larger EBITDA companies, they've been on ice for months now. It's starting to loosen up a little bit better, but the paradigm has shifted dramatically. And we see it day to day in talking to the other bankers. And I know your attendance is very high on this from the number of bankers who are dialing in. So we're all looking for answers. What happens next? You guys are a sorry lot, man. All you lenders just all piling up on the webinar, on the podcast. If you're one of those good ones like me on the line, come on. You know, I'm just joking. But I get the comment on experience. Heck, I'm almost 49 now. You know, I used to be the young guy in this industry. Now I guess I'm mid-career. But the experience of like you guys have, and I have seen what has happened back in the last couple of challenging times, 08, 09, 2010. And then, you know, even of two or three or four, I mean, these, you know, kind of the ups and down cycles, that's important. I lead a Bible study with some young men, they're high school boys, and I see in them kind of an interest in the stock market the way I used to have in like 98 or 99 when every internet stock came out. And I thought the stock market would never go down. You know what I mean? And so these young boys have not lived through And, you know, and a lot of people on this phone who are in their 20s and early 30s, I mean, we all live through COVID, but have not really seen like a pronounced and prolonged downward trend. Not that I'm saying it's going to happen, but experience in those areas is really helpful because a lot of people just haven't seen it in the past. How about we jump into something else? Like a couple of questions here on how about how much is your loan volume currently dropping because of rising interest rates or weak credit? And then how many deals are you personally trying to fund right now? I mean, we can wrap those into two into one question. What do you think, Nick? How do you answer those two questions? When you're talking about the time frame, so deal volume, loan volume, definitely lower now than it was in 21 when it was sort of peak. I would say probably 10, 15% would be the perspective from our business, but still 10, 10 or 15% down, down or 80 year, o- year over year, I would say oh, 21. That's not bad. Yeah, not too bad. But the perspective in our business is probably a little bit different because we're a little bit more in a growth mode. And we've 
had pretty good volume so far in the first six months of this year. But, you know, like it does kind of depend on your perspective, right? If you've been spending a lot of time managing covenant defaults and dealing with problem borrowers, you know, you're less inclined to be looking hard at that next transaction. Our business was in a growth mode, so we don't have a lot of baggage of a portfolio that was hanging around and doing poorly. And like I said, we kind of managed to an expectation. So we've already seen what we had sort of bounce back. So we're in a good position to go for that. But overall, my guess is loan volume year over year is down more in the 20 to 30% range across you know, the industry sort of generally, just because of the lack of M&A activity. And I might even be a little bit underestimating that, frankly. I'd say that, you know, it was a phenomenon started to happen last fall. I saw it in some of the larger syndicated deals. And I went back and kind of peeled the onion. And you find that the top 25 banks in the country had more dramatic decline in deposits beginning last summer and into the fall. As rates rose, money was efficiently chasing the most profitable place to go to work. And it was moving out of bigger banks into money market accounts and other T-bills and those sorts of things as rates were rising. And so it continued on through the fourth quarter. We're hearing stories with larger banks were not increasing on a participation. They might've been a meaningful role in, or they were actively looking to get out of relationships, you know, because they was a loan only relationship. And you're going to continue to hear that sort of term and theme as the year grinds on. If that's the only part of a relationship Banks are getting back to the old school way of like, we are relationship managers, right? So there's a bigger relationship that we want all of the business that goes with that or some portion of it in order to participate. It wasn't really until the first quarter that the rest of the banking industry that under the top 25 started to see deposits decline. And the acceleration was kind of staggering. If you think about it, there's something like 16 or $17 trillion of deposits in the US banking system. And to lose what was about $1.2 trillion on the last reporting that I saw. And June hasn't even reported yet. But I suspect it's going to be not too far off because the banks that were reporting in the second quarter of the past few weeks have indicated that the worst of the deposit declines seems to have passed. It's behind us. And so between the first quarter and the second quarter, it seems to be kind of flattening out or slight decline. Some banks are putting up positive deposits. And so therefore you know, they're kind of fixing the problem, but it doesn't change the fact that some banks are seeing 10, 14, 15% declines in deposits year over year. So that makes a dramatic change on how they're going to do business because deposits, as I said, that's our cost of goods sold, you know, for the operators out there, that's what we sell. We put money to work. And if you don't have it available, just like when you can't source chicken wings, the price is going to go up. And if you want to sell chicken wings, you're going to pay it, but you're also going to charge more in order to do that. And so that phenomenon of just supply and demand in a different form, is going to be a theme that continues in the year ahead. As far as the pipeline and what's coming, there's going to be good opportunities to move. Folks will get frustrated and want to leave a bank that's no longer servicing them. And so that's the advice you should take away from this call is that have as many conversations with as many bankers as you can Plan on being there in November in Las Vegas at the Restaurant Finance Conference. I suspect we'll have an outsized turnout for operators versus lenders and bankers. It usually flips during times like this when folks are looking for money. Well said. I would think to your point that we're probably near the end of the deposits dropping, just frankly, because 
it's been terrible at banks for long enough. People, if they were going to make a move and leave a bank to go chase a T-bill or another way to make money with more interest on it, they would have done it by now. And if they were scared, like I got a couple of calls from buddies of mine who had lots of money in Silicon Valley Bank. And I was just talking to him. One of them's like, you just tell me all the crazy things he had to do to get his money out of there. Like he got it out like two hours before it all shut down. Just a lot of that kind of panic, pulling money out of small banks, I would think. That, yeah, that crisis has ended. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. there were two crises. You know, keep this in perspective. There were two crises happening. One was a liquidity crisis. And yes, it was idiosyncratic to those four or five banks that were had unique situations. And the Fed, Treasury, everybody sprung into action and made it really clear that we're not going to have a banking crisis where banks fall apart. You need to pull your money out of banks. This is not the Great Depression. They put liquidity backstops in place where you can borrow against the bonds that you have on your books. You can get 100 cents on the dollar. You can find the liquidity to match when money is trying to leave the bank. I think that sort of panic has ended. And I think everybody would probably agree with that. The bigger crisis is more the one that's going to be the slow train wreck of commercial real estate losses, of a smaller bank balance sheet, of tighter credit and scrutinizing borrowers that will feel like a credit crunch. Most folks who know me, I'm very transparent. I don't mix words. And I think we're going to be facing a credit crunch and a recession that will make you appreciate your banker a whole lot more if they can get stuff done for you. Let's take it back to franchise M&A for a minute. So what are you guys seeing that's happening in the trenches specifically on M&A deals? Are you seeing deals being retraded, restructured? Are they reaching closing, not reaching closing? Are your risk departments? What's going on inside the inner workings of these deals now at your all shops right now? Maybe Mike, then back to Nick. Sure. I tell you, going into the end of the year, we fell victim to that, a very large opportunity that didn't get to closing. I was hearing about other deals. You had a bid ask gap that was too wide. And people were getting surprised during their due diligence phase. They'd strike a deal, submit a letter of intent to buy a company, and then get into due diligence and new numbers were showing up and they were showing a negative trend. And nobody wanted to catch the falling knife. And so you saw more of that, I think, in the third, fourth quarter of last year, maybe first quarter. But again, as things started to turn and stabilize and you're rolling off those softer quarters from last year and you're putting those behind you, the laps of those, it feels like that's not happening as often. At least I haven't heard it, at least in the say 90, 120 days occurring. And so perhaps that phase of uncertainty and a gap on uh, you know, the equilibrium of buyers and sellers is returning to something a little more normal. And I feel like the rest of the year, it, it'll probably be a lot tighter and you're seeing it real time. So you'll know, you can tell us, right, of what's yeah. happening out there. Yeah, for sure. And Nikki, I want you to jump in here too, but I'd make the comment that, you know, a lot last year we closed a decent amount of deals, but, but a lot of them got extended. You know, we had to find another buyer. The price potentially in some cases, depending on the brand and the circumstance, had to change. You know, maybe a time or two that real estate, if it was owned by the franchisee, was held back because the commercial real estate market, the 1031 market, wasn't strong at the moment. You know, there are these just a little adjustments that were made. The deal volume dropped, but yet at the franchisor level, we saw franchisors taking at least a time and a half as long, sometimes double the time to approve a transaction, even when they have 10% of volume at their desks that they had in the last couple of years. This summer though, and I went from the spring to the summer, it kind of felt like, you think about Rocky and like Rocky three, right? Remember Rocky and Rocky three? Like he's kind of, he's bumming, he's down and out, you know, he 
if Apollo Creed comes at him, right? And then he starts to train and he's hanging his lip, goes out to LA, and then he starts dun 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 dun, dun right? And he gets a little momentum and he's getting in shape. I feel like that's kind of happening in our MA transactions. Like I feel like they're building strength and confidence. I don't hear buyers and sellers bickering so much in the trenches of like PL updates and and issues and concerns, you know, some of the legal points aren't quite as prickly and as difficult. So I kind of would agree with that, that it feels to me a little like we're on a little more solid footing from an M&A standpoint for deals transacting between buyer and seller. But what do you think, Nick? You got any comments on all of that? Yeah, I can't say that I've experienced deals falling apart. We haven't worked on anything that fell apart recently, but you know, I would just say in general, the observation that I have is whenever you have periods of volatility where your historical trailing performance looks very different than your future predicted performance, you have a hard time bringing buyers and sellers together in both directions, right? You know, like when you're coming off of a great quarter, your sellers want to run right the crap out of that, right? So, and your buyers want to look at, well, what did you do three years ago pre-COVID? That's what I'm looking at. And now we're in a period of time where the buyers really want to look at trailing numbers, right? Because there's still six months of really not so great performance in there. So they know they're on the upswing, but I think it's time for sellers to start saying, let's run rate this. And you mentioned before, like Mike, you mentioned that you think leverage is coming down. That may be true for some banks. It's not true for me. I'm comfortable moving leverage up, particularly when I'm underwriting off of a trailing number today because I don't think that's very representative of future performance based on what we see in the run rate today. So those kinds of things move around. I think it's the judgment around how to put the historical and your future prediction into some sort of context. When those things come into a more stable alignment, buyers and sellers tend to agree. They reach a price and they stick with it and deals close. When those things are really far apart, it doesn't tend to work out that way and things get moved around and recut as every new month comes in and either it's going up or down, right? So I think that's just been the period of time we've been in, but that's going to start to even out. I think it was a good point that I, you know, I hadn't heard much before, which is you're comfortable looking at the past, you know, and maybe not dropping your coverages and your ratios because the trailing 12 months has a component of poor performance in it, right? And so that's uh at least from a relative basis. I mean, there's well, nothing. We all know. Yeah, we all know. Like, it's just sort of nuts to expect, like, hey, your cost of goods went 15% this month. Why didn't you raise your prices 15% this month? Yeah. yeah. Like, we all know it doesn't work that way, that it's got to take a little time. So, putting that into some sort of context, but it works both ways. I mean, there are anomalies. Mike, you brought up the issue of chicken wings, right? Like, chicken wings. Dude, wing stop. Wing stop. Like Wingstop yeah, I mean, is an anomaly. Like, whoa, yeah, I mean, it's a great business, right? I mean, yeah. and it's been great. But if you're underwriting, you know, chicken wing based on the idea that it's going to stay at that all-time low and not revert to a normalized, at least historical average, that's nuts, right? It's all about trying to figure out what have we been through, but what is the norm? And how do we kind of expect to get to that norm and over what period of time? That's what you have to underwrite too, I think, generally speaking. And the Wingstop deal uh, brand in particular, we just closed a 20-year Wingstop transaction. I mean, you're seeing like 10 to 15% sales increases every single period over last year. Some of it's a lot of some of it's demand, transaction growth, and some of it is pricing. And then you're seeing the price of wings drop like 600 basis points or 6%. Half. 
Yeah, way year over year. You know, I mean, and you're, all of a sudden, the EBITDA like of a business might go from like three million to like eight million, like wham, like this. And I'm like, what am I in here? Am I like in a software business? Like, is this Google? You know, what's happening here? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, not to overly focus on wings, it just happens to be one of the commodity anomalies yeah, today. But totally. any kind of dependence on a particular commodity that's volatile just happens to be chicken is fairly volatile, right? Because of the gestation period. So, you know, prices are low, they correct to high again, prices are high, they correct to low, like it's just sort of very predictable in that particular realm. So, you know, you just have to pay attention to the stuff. We just have time for probably one more question each, maybe, or maybe one and a half, I don't know. What do you like? You know, on the line here, we're going to have, you know, I think I told you guys before, you're going to have mid-size operators, you're going to have large operators, you're going to have private equity funds, and family offices, and small operators, everybody in between. What do you like in terms of the types of loans you want to make for the next six to 12 months? What types of segments and what advice would you give broadly across the board to all of those clients if you could, even if you wouldn't bank them? Start with Nick and then end with Mike. How about that? Yeah, I've never taken the point of view that I see a lot in our industry of like, I'm going to pick and choose the three brands I like and only do that, right? What I've observed over time is there are good businesses, good operators across a very large number of brands, and you can find good transactions. You just may have to adjust certain things, right? Like you have to think about the enterprise values are always going to be more elevated in a big national brand because they're just more buyers. It's a more active buy and sell market than maybe a more regional, smaller brand. There are adjustments like that, but I don't really rule anything out in that sense. Like, I just don't think that makes sense. And I frankly find the beauty of managing a portfolio across the industry is getting some diversification because all brands go through cycles, even the best ones. I think, you know, you have to kind of be prepared for those ups and downs. And frankly, like I love underwriting good operators in historically good brands going through a bad cycle. It's a lot easier. You know, everything looks good when it's good, right? And, you know, a lot of really mediocre operators and businesses look good when everything's good. But it's when the times are a little bit tougher that you can kind of see and pick out the quality out there. So I find, you know, just from a credit underwriting standpoint, that's easier is to sort of figure out. And I like catching a brand on a cycle when you know, like times are better in the future. So I think I kind of look at that differently than a lot of banks where they're just like, we don't do this. We don't do that. We only do these. And I just don't think that's the right approach generally. Yeah, it's great feedback. I would say, even though I think the financial buying community will continue to grow within the franchise space, you know, it just will. I do think all of us, including the franchisors, lenders, everybody really are kind of doubling down on good boots on the ground, hands on operators. I mean, I think we all like that type of person. We've some franchisors are publicly saying that they don't want large absentee financially backed operators in their businesses. And that's something I haven't heard in quite a few years. So when times do get tough, usually the person with experience who knows his or her business and knows the employees and knows how to operate it in store is the type of person who's going to come out smelling like roses. What do you think, Mike? You got a quick minute yeah. and a half here and then we'll end up. Yeah. For all the dark clouds, there's silver linings. There always are. I've been doing it for 25 years. If I was that dour, I'd give it up. But at times like this are really when QSR shines, right? And fast casual and people do trade down. And I do like 
the fact that the restaurant industry is all about small indulgences. And some, you'll spend more money when you got more money and you'll go fine dining, you'll get a big steak, do upscale casual. Other times it's like, you know, I worked a double and I just want to get some Taco Bell. And it's that simple. And I think the idea of rewarding yourself with a restaurant experience is something that makes this industry kind of magical. And I love it. Even during the dark times, people will continue to go to restaurants. And so what do you do? You pursue the safer bets, right? We're a bank. We're not in the business of taking equity risk for senior lender returns. And you got to be careful with that. And some banks will take that risk and they'll usually get burned and retreat. And so There's going to be a period of time where lenders are moving away from this space, and that creates more opportunity for us. I like that fact. We like real estate. I've been able to do a number of larger real estate transactions now, and you can say, well, my gosh, you're dour on commercial real estate, not triple net lease restaurant properties that are in the fast food business with a drive-through. Their cap rates are still low. Investors still like those businesses. And the dynamic of principal and interest costs, you're not over leveraging yourself because these are businesses that are built on a operations essential business. You've got to have those four walls to do your business. And so that's a great place to put money to work. And we've been pretty effective on that. We like all size deals. I mean, we do the smallest of McDonald's operators. We'll do some of the largest private equity family office back transactions. We will write bigger checks for the right situations. But I would be lying if I told you that it's going to be a tighter crucible, much more difficult underwriting process today than it was in 21. I think every banker on the line will tell you that. And so I think that, you know, finding a banker who's been through a number of these cycles, right, who can be your macroeconomic advisor, who can help be your outsourced corporate finance guy with different structures and deal insights and those sorts of things. These are the times when I get most excited because that's when the phone will ring and like, you know what you're talking about. You've seen this before. What should I do now? What do you think? And that's when I know I'm doing a good job is when folks are calling up and say, every time I talk to you, I learn something new, right? And so seek out those situations. It's going to be bumpy. There's no getting around the incredible economic experiment we've just conducted by putting eight and a half trillion dollars into this economy and now vacuuming it back up out of it. And that's going to create all sorts of volatility and problems, but it also creates opportunity. And that's when buyers understand that this could be once in a lifetime kind of buying opportunity. So make sure that you have strong relationships with your bankers, make sure that you can finance deals. And if you're not going to get every last nickel of leverage today, understand it might be a year or two from now and you can recap out when you've made that exceptional acquisition and the markets have more normalized when it comes to credit. That'd probably be my insight. That's a wrap for it, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. Both of you guys, excellent Thank job you. today. We, all three of us have staked our career and our future and our heart and soul. I know I can speak for myself, probably for these guys too, into this beautiful industry, the restaurant industry, the franchise industry. It's like everything I know and love. Every day I wake up, it's what I want to do. So we're in it for you. We are a little anxious, but probably excited a little bit too for the future. I think m and will pick up in the second half of the year. So there'll be some things coming. So stay tuned. Thanks again for everyone who listened and tuned in. Gentlemen, really appreciate it. Thank you. And, uh, you guys did a great job. And we'll see you in November, if not before. You all take care, okay? You take bet. care. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks so much for entering the boiler room today. 
You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. Thank you.